Before you guys take a seat, do me a favor. I want you to meet two perfect strangers, not the same strangers you said hi to last week. And I want you to tell them your favorite uh, blockbuster comic book superhero, you know, the movies, you know what I'm talking about, like, name it, whoever, whoever it is, and tell them your favorite, if you have one. So who said what? Did anybody, any Supermans in the house? Okay. Any um, Spider-Mans? Which one? Because there's a few Spider-Mans, right? Aren't there? Isn't it confusing? It's like, didn't they just do this? How about Hulks? Any Hulks? Boo. Who, somebody said Ant-Man? <laughs> Tiago said Ant-Man. I would have never taken him for an Ant-Man kind of guy. <laughs> have you ever noticed, though, come summertime... It's blockbuster movies. The interesting thing is that these are all like $200 million budgets, and not one of them is ever nominated for any sort of Academy Award. <laughs> Yet, for some reason, we're suckered into going into, the, into seeing them. And whether it is uh, comic book heroes saving Gotham from a villain, or New York from a villain, or prehistoric mammals thwarting a collision course with the, the planet, or Tarzan emancipating the Congo, citizens uniting to deliver humanity from yet another alien invasion? Really? It's the repeated theme over and over again. One story, salvation. Whether it's Keanu Reeves rescuing that bus that can't go below 50 miles an hour, or whether it's you know somebody like Liam Neeson or somebody saving the plane, or keeping this city from being blown up. It's always about rescuing, about saving. The story happens over and over again, whether it is, what, depending on who, who's playing it. Like, for instance, Stand Up Kenny. It could be Thor. Right? Chris Hemsworth does sound for Christ afar. I just wanted to let you know that. A great example of that. Let's, let's tell the story of Thor. Tell me if this sounds ever so familiar. The son of a god sent to the planet to rescue mankind from an evil being. Does that sound familiar at all? Wait, he didn't make it. Oh, he's back. Hmm. Sounds familiar. They all have the same story. A reluctant protagonist is thrust into a position where he doesn't think he can make it, but after getting knocked down, he rises to the occasion with usually the support of others and goes against all odds to save humanity or to save the city, or to save the bus, or the plane, ultimately to become who he or she was born to be, a hero. A hero. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much. Jesus, you are our superhero. You healed. You walked on water. You raised from the dead. And you came to rescue us all. We just pray that our hearts would be in tune with you and your word today. That our souls would be in tune with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you guys like summer? I think some of you guys like it so much you're not here right now. So you're listening to the podcast. (laughs) You know, we have had a very unique summer. Uh, we travel all over the world. Uh, it's been a little while since we've seen you, and that's because we've been very, very busy lately, and busy in a good way. 
but we've spent almost six weeks at home now. Uh, I call this place my vacation home. I'm not here often. Just enough time for my wife to unpack, do laundry, and pack, and then we go again. But this month, we set a few goals. One was to raise the funds for our upcoming missions trips, but the other one was to teach this little girl. Oops, stand up, baby. This little one, how to swim. What's your name? Ziza. Ziza, how old are you? Five. Ziza, you just told a lie. How old are you? Four. She, she counts her, her this, this is her pro-life age. She's counting the womb, and she's, she's accurate. She's, she's been around for five years. She was just kind of hiding for the first nine months. <laughs> so we set out to teach her how to swim. And um, at a four-year-old, that means that I'm always on rescue status the whole entire time. And uh, in, including the black eye that she has right now, which she just got from the pool, getting a little too kamikaze, weren't you, Ziza? Ziza, we like to do something, don't we? Okay, now, now she's been all over the world. She's been on 180 flights so far. So she's learned how to say hello in different languages. Like, how do you say hello in Spanish? Hola, como estas? Okay, come here, come here, come here, Ziza. Let's do this. Okay, now, if when we were in Hawaii doing a tour, um, we greet each other like this. Forehead to forehead. It's the aloha. And you're supposed to breathe what they exhale, and it's kind of like, it's, it's a beautiful way of kind of sharing bad breath if you don't have a mint. Um, in America, we're, in the mainland, should I say, we just shake hands. It's, it's not that passionate usually, but it, it's kind of like you know, at a, at, a, at a distance. Now, sometimes if you really love somebody, you give them a big old Chiago hug. Come on, come on, give me a hug, baby. And, okay, Ziza, come here, baby. This is not acrobatic time. It's the wand. It's making, giving her extra power. Okay, now, other times we do, we do uh, Eskimo kiss. Butterfly kiss. And you ready for it? This is my favorite, okay? So, like, when I'm teaching her how to swim and we go out into the ocean, we're doing pool one day, ocean the next day, back and forth, trying to scare the heck out of her when we take her out in the waves, but trying to get her used to it. She freaks out. So this is what I do to calm her down. We call it cheek-to-cheek with daddy. But this is an interesting thing. Have you ever been, like, like at my parents' house where we visit from time to time? You can see the Hollywood Hills. The other day, the Hollywood Hills were on fire. And so... I wanted to show Ziza, look, it looks like a volcano. So come here, baby. I want to show you. So the only, she couldn't see it. She didn't understand it. But then when we went cheek to cheek, then I can point and she can see where I'm pointing. What do you see right now? I see um, the doors. The doors. I see a cross on a flag. Me too. I see a lady in a pink shirt. It's bright pink. I see a purple I see a purple lady that have purple flowers in her dress. Nice. So we like to do that. And, and, and it helps her and it helps me that we see the same thing. Okay, baby, you can go down and play with the kids now, okay? Give her a round of applause there. So I got in an argument with somebody the other day. And I actually was saying these words. Are we ever going to see things eye to eye? 
No, it wasn't you. But then I realized something. Wait a minute. If I see things eye to eye with you, I'm seeing you and you're seeing me. We're not seeing from the same perspective. God doesn't want us to see things eye to eye. He doesn't want us to just see him and he just sees us. He wants us to see things cheek to cheek. The same exact perspective that he sees things from. The same way he sees things. Now, there's so many things that we could glean from the scriptures, so much insight we could, we could get from it, from, from these beautiful books in the Bible. But I'm going to give you three simple things that I believe God really, really wants you to see things the same way he sees them, cheek to cheek. Number one is people, humans, humanity, whatever. Now, when you see these movies and that person gets rescued, that person is saved, this is what happens. At some time in that person's life, they will die. Lazarus, raised from the dead. Thanks, Jesus. He's not around anymore. You see, death is, well, it's 100% guarantee for all of us. The percentage rates are out. Just, they're incredible. Unless the Lord comes back right now, you know, there's a chance. Well, okay, so the thing that I believe Jesus wants you to see is not the person, but the eternal person, the soul, if you will. The fact that each one of us are eternal beings. You may not agree with someone. You may be disgusted by their lifestyle. But it doesn't change the fact that they have a soul. It's like the Matrix. There's a movie. I mean, when the blinders were off, all of a sudden he saw things completely different. This isn't real. This is a facade, he realized. What God wants you to realize is this is really real. And that is a real person. And they're going to one of two places, heaven or hell. Not to see the person, but the eternal soul, and ultimately to see their destination. Where are they going? Now, a great example of this is in the book of John. I love John. And in the book of John, Jesus is talking to somebody that was forbidden. I mean, he was talking to a Samaritan woman. Man talking to woman, whoop, Samaritan. eh. And she had done all kinds of things, and he called her out on it in a loving way. If you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for water, and you would never thirst again. She goes back to tell her friends, her family, he knew everything about me. In the meantime, the disciples come alongside Jesus and said, Rabbi, eat something. But he says to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. When Jesus is talking about food that you don't know anything about, you got to listen up, because first miracle... All you can drink beverage bar. One of his greatest miracles, let me tell you. He invented the, the buffet, fish and chips. Right? So his disciples, they say, could someone have brought him food? What's going on? Somebody said, that sounds good. You guys right now are thinking, what are we going to eat for lunch right now? Aren't you? <laughs> Jesus was a foodie, trust me. Think about it. Like... Last Supper, hello, that wasn't like a little cracker and a little shot glass of grape juice. That was no ocean spray involved in that. These guys were eating. These guys were full. 
he would eat with the tax collectors. He would sit down with Zacchaeus. He would, as they would say in Hawaii, he would grind. Let's grind, man. Break some bread. So his disciples, could somebody have brought him food, they said. What is Jesus eating? And then Jesus in John 4, 34 says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus' food. Now, when you're hungry, you eat and you are satisfied. You are full. You are no longer hungry. What satisfies Jesus, what makes him complete, what makes him whole, him full, is to do the will of him who's, of the one who sent him and to finish his work. That's deep. What if you could find that soul satisfaction? That thing that drove you so much that food wasn't even as important. What was he talking about? If only we knew. If only somewhere in the Bible it... Hmm. Well, the next verse. Let's read it. John 4, 35. Look, he gives the answer right here. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until the harvest. I can imagine him pointing to a field that looks barren but has little sprouts all throughout it. Don't you have a saying about four more months until you're picking something? I tell you, as he points over towards the well, it's almost evening time now. Everyone's filling up their buckets for dinner. I tell you, open your eyes, your spiritual eyes. Look at this through the matrix, if you will, and look at the fields. Imagine just this field of white turbans on their heads. I tell you, the crop, the harvest... Is ripe. And you know that the workers, the laborers, are few. So what Jesus is saying is, hey man, you're talking about food, you're talking about drink. I'm talking about what really satisfies my soul is to win souls. Because he came to rescue. You see, there's two types of people in the world, just like there are two types of people at the beach right now. Those who are alive and those who are drowning, those who have been rescued and those, and in many ways, when it comes to sin, those who think they can swim, but they're going down. I've rescued two people from drowning. One of them was a band member. And both times they said, I'm fine, right before they went under for a long time. We think we're fine. We think we can swim. We think we can do it. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, was on a train one day in Europe, and all of a sudden he got a vision from the Lord. He saw this sea of people as they were driving by, and he saw in this vision this ocean, vast, vast ocean, horrible storm, and people were drowning. And some managed to pull themselves up onto a platform, and out of this platform came this giant rock. And these people were drying off now. These people were now safe. Sure, a few people were out still trying to rescue others. But most of them, once they got dry, they got so busy with their, their Twitters and their Instagrams and, and, you know, busy with their busyness that they forgot about those who were drowning. And they started to worship the rock. And they started to sing praises to him. And then God sent into the water, this incredible lifeguard whose job was to rescue everyone. And so as he was rescuing them and throwing them up 
up onto this wooden platform to safety, he was saying, help me. And they would turn to this son and they would say, no, make me feel more secure where I'm at right now. I'm doubting you. I'm wondering if you really exist. Can I sing a song about you right now? Let's sing a song about how safe we are in you. And he's saying, no, come down. Help me rescue others. And it's just this sad parable that in so many ways ties into what we've become as the church. You know, the Great Commission were some powerful marching orders, weren't they? Powerful. And I believe that the that the, the disciples, the apostles, they really got it. It really clicked with them. Talk about good movies, Risen. Anybody see Risen? I love it. I'm going to give a spoiler alert. If you haven't seen it, don't worry. You already know Jesus raises from the dead. But right after he ascends, the main character looks over at Peter and says, so you're going to go back to fishing? And Peter looks with a smile and said, a fisher of men. How can I do anything different? I was a drug addict. I was an alcoholic. I was a marijuana user, turned into marijuana grower, turned into marijuana dealer, turned into high, high life, going to low life, lying in my own vomit, running away from home, living on the streets. When I got set free, I had a mission. And that mission was to save as many souls as possible. That mission was to see every one of my drug friends come to Christ. And so I started Christ Afari. And within two months of starting the band and coming to Christ, I went from being like this drug head to this Jesus freak. They thought I was crazy. But we had this concert, and I saw 30 of my Christian, of my non-Christian friends become Christians. Should I stop? I should stop, right? Because I was done. I've reached my friends. I could retire and just um, get a normal nine to five, right? Good to go. Don't need to even share at the nine to five because I already reached my friends, right? Heck no. Marching orders, ends of the earth. Let's go. Let's do this. I took him seriously. Went to Jamaica, then Costa Rica. Did the Reggae Sunsplash tour here. Been to 70 countries since. I will not stop until all have heard. I will preach the word. The disciples, they got it. Every one of them heard that great commission. Every one of them went to at least one other nation. All but one of them died. Died as martyrs. That's how seriously they took it. I'm not saying you guys should do that by any means. But I am saying that what has changed and I'm guilty of this too. We have gotten this mindset that the Great Commission is, all authority has been given to me under heaven and earth. Therefore, go every Sunday morning at one of two or three services, sit in the most comfortable chair, and get spoon-fed the word by the pastor, and check that box off, give tenth of your money, and you're good. And that's just not what I see in the book of Acts. This is crucial. Church is a crucial, crucial part of being a Christian. 
but it's not all. It's not all. I, I love to go from church to church because I see the differences. And, and, and one church we were ministering at in Hawaii, as we were walking out onto the stage, they had this sign on the door that I, you can't ignore as you walk onto the stage to preach. And it said, everything tied to a soul. Say that, everything tied to a soul. Every single thing you do, whether you know it or not, is tied to a soul. Everything you do, for good or for bad, you could be ignoring it. It could be a sin of omission, something you're not saying when God puts it on your heart, but it's tied to a soul. So the first thing that I, got, I believe God wants you to see cheek to cheek with him is souls. The second thing is eternity, time, if you will. You know, as we're going to the beach every other day, that means that I have a, um, a sand full of bed at home. I just said that, right? Not a bed full of sand, a sand full of bed. Because there's, you know, sand gets in my hair. And no matter how much I wash it for like 20 minutes, I still, when I lay down at night, I'm rolling over. I'm like, dang, there's sand all, I mean, just, you know, little itsy bitsy things. Now, if I were to get one of those, if I were to find just one little grain, you couldn't even see it from where you're at. And I took that grain down to, was that Dockweiler? Is that the name of the beach? And I took it 25 steps out and dropped it. And if I gave you the GPS coordinates, would you be able to find it? No. Now, if you went out there and I said, that that grain of sand is worth 110 years. That's how long my grandma lived. So let's just say everybody lives to 110 now, right? Now look to your left and look to your right and look under your feet. That's eternity. If every one of those grains of sand is 110 years as far as you can see, as far as you can imagine, is eternity. Where do you want to be spending it? One of our biggest hits is a cover of Hillsong United's Hosanna. And in it, we sing, everything I am for your kingdom's cause as I walk from earth into eternity. Just see that. Just imagine that. Walking. You know, my mom, I grew up in like a Brady Bunch family. I mean, all the neighbors would come over. They, all the kids would come over. It was just like so, our family was so abnormal. My mom painted joy on the wall in like bright colors. She was like, oh, everything was so, so happy. She was always singing to herself. And so these are my mom's cuss words. Okay, you ready? Oh, crumb. That was when you knew. That was like the S-bomb for her. That was like, oh, crumb. And then if she got really, oh, for heaven's sake. I love that phrase, for heaven's sake. What if we started living not for earth's sake? Because let's face it, we buy this stuff. It's, I, think, I think it's called planned obsolescence, obsolescence or something. You know, Essentially, like when you bought something in the 50s, it was going to last, it was going to outlast you. Now it's only going to last a certain amount of time, and you're not going to be the guy who's going to take it back to Costco you know, because you don't have your receipt or whatever, but you're just, you're just always going to get something new. Your new car isn't going to be new for long. Those possessions, those things that we, that we try to pile up that we think matter don't matter at all. What if everything we did was for heaven's sake? What if... Our treasure was in heaven. Wherever your heart is, your treasure will be. Wherever your treasure is, your heart will be. What if? And if so, I believe we would have so much more joy and peace. 
and these the here and now stuff that's supposed to be so annoying to you, it would be so insignificant to you. You know, we think the most important day is when we do the graduation walk or when we do the wedding aisle walk. I remember that when these two got married in my parents' backyard, that was like the most insane year of their lives. It was like everything was scripted, every minute, every second, every flower, every this, every that. The dress, it was beautiful, and they have it for pictures. But guess what? That's not the best day of your life. The most incredible walk isn't your little baby boy's first five steps. No, it's beautiful. Those are all beautiful things, but the most incredible one is when you walk into heaven. That's the only one that matters because you don't want to spend that eternity in hell. I was told recently of something called the Revelation 7-9 paradigm. Say, Revelation 7-9 paradigm. What verse is it? Of what book? There it is. So, I'm going to read it to you right now. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every... Wait, no, you know what? I'm doing this wrong. Close your eyes. If you're a believer in Christ, this isn't just some story in a children's Bible with nice images. This is something that's going to happen to you. So I want to give you a little... Just give some imagery to this, okay? Imagine this in your mind right now. Imagine this with your eyes closed. There before you is a great multitude that no one can count. From every nation, every tribe, you see different colored skin. You hear different accents. And every language, you hear Portuguese. You hear Spanish. You hear all these different languages. And you understand them. Standing before the throne, you are all standing. We are all standing together before the throne, before the Lamb. We are wearing white robes, not a scuff on them either. They're like radiant white. And we're holding palm branches in our hands. And we cry in a loud voice together. Say this with me with your eyes closed. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now with your eyes closed, I want you to imagine yourself looking to your right and to your left. Who do you want to see standing there? Who do you want to see shoulder to shoulder with you? Who in your life do you need to know is going to be there? You can open your eyes. Never again will we hunger. Never again will we thirst. Never again will we cry. You know, we see glimpses of heaven everywhere we go. When we go to Brazil, there's some beautiful places. Make me say, ah, oh, this is what it's going to be like. When we go to Hawaii, we see even more beautiful places. No offense. Hawaii has this incredible, they take care of their land, right? Right? They treat it as like holy land. And so it doesn't matter the beach. You will not find one can, one piece of trash. If you do, a Hawaiian will be very vexed at you. They keep it pristine. 
the same way that they feel about trash on the beach is the way that God feels about sin in heaven. I, I love the beach, as I've mentioned before. So yesterday as we're pulling into a parking lot at Torrance Beach, somebody reaches out of their black SUV. If you're driving a black SUV, I'm going to talk to you afterwards. And they drop just a bunch of napkins on the ground. You don't see that often, you know. And I'm wanting to, like, honk or just let them have it. And then I see the back sticker says, God loves you. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> or when I go for a walk down to Bluff Cove, it's a 20-minute walk down the cliffs of Palos Verdes, 20-minute paddle out, surf for a while, paddle back in, and then you see it. Some, Jesus said you're not supposed to call them idiots, so I didn't call them that. <laughs> As a dog, they have the courtesy of bagging it up for you, but there's this hot steaming bag of you-know-what just sitting there. Dude, what are you doing, man? There's nobody around, so it's not like they're coming back for it later. What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to carry this trash out? <laughs> Put this bag of poop in my pocket? How much poop is okay on your beach? One bag? There's seven billion people here, so what about seven billion bags of poop? Would that be would it be the same beach anymore? No. And it wouldn't be the same heaven if sin was allowed inside. If sin was allowed inside, it would not be the same. And that's why we sing in Hosanna, break my heart for what breaks yours. You see, God wants us to see, point number three, sin the same way that he does. Now, we're used to seeing it as the sinner looking up saying, he is not happy with me right now. We think God's mad at us. No, he's madly in love with you. We think he's pointing a finger of condemnation, shaking his head. No, he's pointing a hand of rescue. He's reaching down to rescue you. See, what we don't understand is that he's not a cosmic killjoy. He didn't just come up with this list. Okay, let's come up with the top 10 pleasurable things. Okay, these are the things you can't do. Ha ha. Now suffer. Depeche Mode, I'm dating myself, said, I think that God has a sixth sense of humor, right? You know, he's just laughing at me. No, no, he's not laughing at you. He's weeping when you sin. And here's why. Because Jesus loves you. Say, Jesus loves me. When you sin, you're hurting yourself. So my daughter, if you notice, she has a little bit of a black eye. As we're in the pool, my friend, he has this like rope swing with like a wood thing at the top. And so she decides to swing, to grab onto it and swing into the pool. She does it once, and I catch her and I say, no, 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 do not do that again. You will get hurt. You cannot do that. Okay. I turn my head for a second. Oh, I'm like, and she doesn't cry much anymore. I was swinging in the She disobeyed me, and she hurt herself. I hate lessons like that. Lessons like gravity with your child when they just keep falling. But they're such good lessons because we learn. The problem is some of us just aren't learning. Sin hurts you. God loves you. Sin hurts others, those around you. It doesn't just hurt you. We think, ah, oh, it doesn't matter what I do. It's my choice. We use words like freedom, 
choice. It's my right. It's an option. I was born this way. We even use churches like, uh, in churches, we use phrases like, oh, it's just a moral failure. That's why the pastor left. Moral failure. Let's call it what it is. This is the target you missed. You hit the wrong wall. God has a plan for you. And that plan is no pain for you, no pain for others. Good relationship with him. When we miss that, it's sin. So your sin hurts you. Your sin hurts others. Second greatest commandment, love others. God loves them. God doesn't want you to hurt your mother or your father, your sister, your brother, your wife, your husband. And you do. And a great example of this, let's just take a sin like uh, alcoholism. It's not hurting anybody. You know, I'm throwing back 24 beers a day. Nothing wrong with that, except for my kidneys and my liver, um, except for my, uh, you know, just my overall health, uh, my job. Well, I think I'm probably going to lose it. Uh, my driving record. Uh, well, I did hit somebody, but I didn't die because I was drunk as a skunk and I just walked out. But that person died. And now I'm in jail for... 15 years, and my mom is crying for me every day, and she comes and visits when she can. But my sin didn't hurt anybody. Wait a minute. My sin hurt me. My sin hurt those around me. My sin hurt my mom. We see it as horizontal, but we also need to see sin as vertical. King David said it best. When he had blown it, I mean, this guy had committed adultery. This guy had killed somebody. And yet he says, God, against you and only you, against you alone have I sinned. He sees it also vertically. You see, sin hurts you. Sin hurts others. Most importantly, sin hurts your relationship with God. It doesn't cut it off. Nothing can separate you from his love. But it creates a a static, a disconnect. If you live in anywhere near the hill, I live kind of at the foothills. I live in Lomita. There's, there's bad cell areas. And when I'm talking to somebody, sometimes I'll just say, you know what? I'll call you back in a minute because I'm going to lose you anyways. If you know there's certain areas where you get the disconnect from God, why are you going there? You know? Why are you going there? You see, this is proof that it causes a disconnect. First sin, Adam and Eve. And they try and hide. God comes walking through the garden. Uh, Adam, Eve, let's hang out. Where are you? He knew where they were. He knew where they were. He was acknowledging that they were hiding for the very first time. Who taught you? Who told you you were naked? And that's what we try and do. We sin, and then we hide from God. Oh, I won't go to church this week. I feel bad about myself. Maybe not next week. Maybe not the week after. Maybe I'll start going after that, after I have some distance between myself and this sin, but never really acknowledging it. That's why King David was a man after God's heart, because once he sinned and he was confronted with it, he would repent of it. 1 John 1, verses 8 through 9 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Say the word confess. Now, when we think that, we think a court of law, we think, I confess, I did it, it's me. But that's not what 
the Bible is meaning with that word. In Greek, it means to agree with God. It means essentially to say the same thing. What do you mean say the same thing? It means the way that God feels about sin, you agree with it, you see it the same way, you say it the same way, and you realize how wrong it is, how much it hurts you and others. That's what God wants you to do. He wants you to see things cheek to cheek. He wants you to realize this is hurting me, this is hurting others. These people are going to heaven or hell. And time is eternal. Where am I going to spend eternity? Where are they going to spend eternity? And that's what fuels us. That's what drives us to the ends of the earth. That's why we've been to 70 countries. That's why in the next six months, we're going to be in 18 countries preaching the gospel. You see, for years, we were seeing around 5,000 decisions for Christ each year. And we were really excited about that, but I just felt like God had more for us. And as we were flying to one of those tribal countries where the, where the you know, tribesmen were dancing with like face paint and stuff, I felt God saying, this is what you're called to do from here on out, to go to the ends of the earth, to go to places that no one would ever even invite you, let alone afford to bring you out. And so we decided to become musicianaries in 2012, and we saw our, the soul count move from 5,000 that year to 6,000. The next year, we did two mission trips in addition to our normal touring, and we saw it go to 8,000. The next year, we did four trips, and we saw it move to 14,000. The next year, we said, what if we did six mission trips? One trip, one tour here to raise the funds, one tour there to win souls. We saw 67,000 decisions for Christ. And we're like, God, this is what we're called to do. What if we could see 100,000 decisions for Christ? So this year, that was our prayer. As of today, almost halfway, a little over halfway through the year, we've seen 95,000 decisions for Christ. We're all in. We are all in. And so God has called us on a new mission in the next decade or less to see a million souls saved, to see a million documented decisions, a million disciples, a million people put into churches, tapped into small groups, following Jesus, and ultimately bearing fruit themselves and going. What if? What if? What's your goal? What's your, your vision, your mission? If you don't aim for something, if you don't verbalize it, if you don't pray for it, it will not happen. Who do you want to see? in heaven with you. Who do you want to see next to you? As you leave this church, I wish that there was a big sign above exit that says you're now entering the mission field. Because quite honestly, you don't have to go to Brazil to be a missionary. I would encourage you to go to Brazil as a missionary. But it begins here. It begins with a missional life. This is the real question, though. This is why I'm here. It's not to feed you a few verses. <laughs> We've talked about him. We've talked to him. We've sang about him. We've sang to him. But have you met him? Bow your heads, please. Can you remember back in your life to a time when you specifically prayed a prayer asking Jesus to be your Lord? asking him to be your savior. Do you remember that time? 
in your heart of hearts, say yes or no. At that time, did you ask forgiveness for your sins? Did you repent? Did you turn away from your sins? Yes or no? And from that point on, was your life marked by a massive change? You were a new creation. The old is gone, the new had come. You probably lost some friends because of it. Your family said, what has happened to you? And are you still walking in obedience with Jesus today? Yes or no? If you said yes to all of those, we'll be standing shoulder to shoulder in heaven together. If you said no, or I don't know, or I can't remember, or, well, my parents are, well, no, 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 it's got to be your decision. It's got to be your choice. It has to be something you remember. And a change, a drastic change would have taken place in your life. Are you still walking intimately with Jesus? If you answered no, I don't know, I can't remember to any of those questions, let's pray this prayer together. Repeat after me, Lord Jesus. Say it out loud, Lord Jesus. Forgive me. I'm a sinner. My sin has hurt me and others. And it's hurt you. Cleanse me. Make me whole. Make me new. Thank you for dying for me. For raising from the dead. Holy Spirit, come inside. Fill me. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. I surrender all. In Jesus' name, say amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, I want to welcome you into the kingdom of God. (laughs) And I want to challenge you with four simple, simple things. Number one, you just talk to God. Continue to. You can't have a relationship if you're not relating with someone. Talk to him. Pray. Say, I'll pray. Say it loud. I'll pray. Number two, read the word. Start in the book of John, one chapter a day. Say, I'll read. Number three, (laughs) you can't hide this. You have to shine this light. And I want you to think of one person that you're like, I don't think I should tell them. Tell them first. Just go for it. Rip off the Band-Aid. So say, I'll share. And the fourth thing, real simple, go to church. Say, I'll go. Say, I'm here. And come back next week. <laughs>